You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, here to bring you another exciting episode where we dive into the ocean of truth and look at the best in scholarship and apologetics and such today and how it affects our world and how we can address people when we talk about our faith. And today we've got an interesting topic with a guest I've wanted to have on for some time and I'm really honored to have him on right now. We're going to be talking about the early Christian distinctiveness in the Roman world of the Christian beliefs. And we're going to be discussing the book, Destroyer of the Gods. No, this is not some science fiction story set in the future with a, a great battle between deities and such. This is actually a battle that took place starting around the first century or so. And the impact of it is felt even to this day, even by atheists today. There is terror feeling the impact of a war that destroyed the gods. And the author of the book, Destroy of the Gods, is Larry Hurtado, who is my guest today. Who is he? He is the Emeritus Professor of New Testament Language, Literature, and Theology at the University of Edinburgh. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh and a former president of a British New Testament Society. Author of 10 books and over 100 articles in journals, multi-author and reference works, his research has ranged broadly on issues in New Testament textual criticism, physical visual features of early Christian manuscripts, the Gospel of Mark, early Christian worship, and the origins and early development of devotion to Jesus. Born and educated in the USA, he taught previously in Regent College, Vancouver, and the University of Manitoba, Winnipeg. He lives in Edinburgh and is married to Dr. Sharon Hunter Hurtado, an art historian. Dr. Hurtado, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Oh, thank you. I very very much enjoy being on, on uh, online here. Now, if my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Ooh, that's a long story since uh, I'm now uh, 72 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started off uh, studying theology as an undergraduate, studying biblical studies and theology as an undergraduate. And um, by the time I'd finished, I realized I wanted to do graduate work, so I did first master's and then Ph.D. work, and, uh, uh, and then, much to my positive surprise, was offered a post at Regent College um, and taught there for three years and then moved to the University of Manitoba. I was there for 18 years, uh, and during that time really developed uh, most of my, my scholarly interests and uh, decided that I wanted to make a career of, of academia. Um, and then uh, in 1996, I interviewed for and was offered the chair here in the University of Edinburgh. So that's how I uh, I've made the trek from initially from the U.S. to Canada and then from Canada to Scotland. Mm-hmm. It's great to have you here. Now, this book I should point out: if you go to the bookstore or Amazon right after hearing this podcast, after I've recorded it, 
You're not going to find this book yet. Right now, the copy I've got, an early preview copy, says it's due out September 15th, 2016. Now, why, why did you write this book, Dr. Hurtado? Well, uh, initially, the, the concern was uh, that I think in the popular level, and indeed even in some scholarly circles, um, in the understandable tendency to... Uh, to, to engage or to understand early Christianity as a historical phenomenon, which means to try to situate it in its own time, first, particularly the first two centuries, situated in the Roman world and, and the Jewish context, to appreciate its connections and similarities with that larger environment, all those things to the good and all those things positive and valid. I felt that there was a lack of adequate attention to the ways in which early Christianity was also different, novel, mm -hmm. even bizarre. So it was primarily uh, uh, trying to, in some sense, set the record straight or balance off um, what had been done uh, on the one hand to say, yes, on the one hand, this is true. On the other hand, this also is true. And so the, the distinctiveness of early Christianity, it seemed to me, uh, had not always been adequately appreciated. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, and uh, engaged, and so the book was primarily intended to do to mm. to do that to say that. Mm. As I was writing it, it also occurred to me as I was writing the chapters and 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 discussing the particular features that made early Christianity distinctive. It also occurred to me time after time how these ideas or these characteristics have now become sort of cultural commonplaces for us. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that became then, as the book was underway, that became a kind of second objective or purpose, which I don't devote as much time to in the book, but it is it is there. It is something that I mention. Mm -hmm. Now, why I call the book the Destroyer of the Gods? Someone looking at a bookstore probably looking like, that sounds like that should be in the fantasy section or the science fiction section, because it, it sounds like a, a sci-fi novel or something of that sort. Well, it wasn't mine. It, uh, the, the publisher actually came up with that particular title. We've mm -hmm. been playing with different titles and, mm -hmm. and had different ones. I mean, I'd suggested maybe a title like um, uh, A Wicked and Insidious Superstition, Ooh. which is one of the uh, charges made against early Christianity and one of the ancient Roman writers. Mm -hmm. uh, this one, Destroyer of the Gods, they came up with and said, we like this, and I thought about it and thought, yeah, that looks good. It, it derives from the account of the martyrdom of Polycarp, mm -hmm. a second century Christian leader. And in the account of his martyrdom, uh, as he's brought into the arena, the crowds shout out, Aha, this is the teacher of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods. Mm. And so um, that's the term they use for Polycarp. So mm -hmm. it was uh, thought to be, you know, we thought it would be a, a, a neat uh, term to use more broadly. The more um, the, the broader application is that one of the condemnations made in uh, in the ancient setting, one of the criticisms made of Christianity, was that they did not reverence the gods, that they were impious people, mm -hmm. uh, that they were indeed atheists, that they rejected the gods, mm -hmm. and um, and so they were seen as a threat to the religious, political, social integrity of the Roman world. So. Um, Destroyer of the gods would probably accurately uh, represent how many in the many Roman pagans would have seen early Christianity. You know, that's uh, something interesting that we can start with from there. Then the idea that Christians were seen as a threat. I mean, today, for instance, in America, 
a lot of atheists would see Christians as a threat because, well, you're trying to pass your fundamentalist laws and establish a theocracy and such. But it sounds to me like atheists back then, or it sounds to me like then that atheism would have been seen as the problem and such. And why would the Christians be seen as problematic to them in, in way different than they are seen as problematic today in America? Well, in the Roman world, it's, it's a very different setting. Uh, in, in the Roman period, the first thing we have to recognize is that um, what we call religion and what we think of as religion as a, as a distinguishable sphere of life. Mm-hmm. You know, have, uh, we have, uh, in our universities, we have departments of economics, we have departments of uh, political studies, we have departments often of religion, and we have departments of philosophy and sociology and so on. And we think of these as each... Uh, quite distinguishable spheres of activity and of life, and you can sort of mix and match them. You know, you can you can uh, uh, your your religion uh, is is one thing that is different from maybe what your economics is. I mean, for example, in today's America, uh, there are different kinds of religious uh, religious affiliation. Amer- United States and most Western countries are religiously pluralist, and we consider religion to be something that is your own personal choice, it's highly individualistic, it's mm-hmm. detachable from everything else about you. All of that's wrong in the ancient world. All of that's very different. In the Roman setting, religion is primarily uh, corporate, social, collective, mm-hmm. and it is not distinguishable from any other area of life. Mm-hmm. But it's a different way. All areas of life, uh, all areas of social activity are um, characterized with a very strong religious element. And so, for example, the gods, all the gods were seen to be valid mm-hmm. by people uh, and in principle worthy of worship. And the gods provide the foundation for society, for politics, for the welfare of families, of cities, of nations. Everything rests upon the gods. And so to, uh, to call into question the validity of the gods, uh, to refuse to reverence them as early Christians did, was not simply a detachable religious controversy. It cut to the very foundations of society, of politics, of the world as they knew it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, the early Christians uh, reject the gods uh, as valid uh, and and, and treat them as invalid of of worship, as imposters, as idols, which has the idea of sort of... um, imposters or phantasms, and uh, refused to participate in the worship of the gods. Mm-hmm. And this was seen as antisocial. I mean, one of the terms, one of the accusations is that Christians are haters of mankind. Mm-hmm. Uh, because how did they express this hatred of mankind? By refusing to join in the worship of the gods. Mm-hmm. Now, to prevent terms also that we could use in, in American language, if we could transport someone from our time back there and see, and they could see us going on, they would say, hey, don't you all follow separation of church and state? They'd have no idea, really, what we were None talking about. No, no. <laughs> it, would, it would seem bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It would, be, it would be complete nonsense. They wouldn't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Because... Um, the Roman world, for example, the Roman Empire proclaimed its legitimacy as having been established by the gods mm-hmm. and supported by the gods. Right. And uh, the city, every city had its tutelary deity, 
mm-hmm. that guarded the city and that acted as the guarantor of its welfare. So, for example, to refuse to honor the god of the city uh, in the eyes of many people meant that you were uh, not established, you, you were not demonstrating, you refused to demonstrate any kind of um, social concern for your fellow, fellow uh, citizens of the city. And uh, by doing that, you could anger the gods by, by withholding from them the worship they were due. You could anger the city god. And if the city god took away his protection, you could have plague, you could have war, you could have earthquakes, social, civil disturbance. Uh, the gods were seen as, as guarding against all those things. And so to fail to reverence them was, in principle, uh, to increase the possibility of such, such uh, disasters or dangers occurring. I believe it was Tertullian who said something along the lines of as soon as you have a flood or a famine or a war or a cry can die immediately for Christians to the lions. Yes. Hmm. Yes, they were the <laughs> they were the uh, usual suspects, so to speak, at that point, uh, because it was known, <clears throat> you know, if if something like that happened, if there was a flood or a fa- or a, or a plague, uh, the, the the many of the common people at least would say. Something has something has happened. The gods have withdrawn their protection and allowed this to happen. So something is to blame. Something is wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and and uh, you know the most perhaps in many cases the most blatant uh, <clears throat> example of something wrong was these Christians who mm-hmm. uh, didn't just defend the gods. They refused to recognize them or to participate in reverence, reverencing any of them altogether. Mm-hmm. So that was about mm-hmm. as extreme, and for the eyes of many people, that was about as extreme an offense against the gods as, as anybody could imagine. Now, I can already picture the pushback Mac and I was discussing with my father-in-law about this show and such, and he was saying, well, yeah, I, I can see that about the Christians, but why would that be such an issue? I mean, the Jews did the exact same thing, but Jews wouldn't worship these gods as well, and they weren't hunted down or accused of impiety and such. I mean, why should we think that the Christians were any different from the Jews then? Well, the crucial, this is another feature of, of what we call religion in the Roman world, mm-hmm. is that religion and ethnicity were typically linked. Mm-hmm. That is, when you didn't have to wonder, who are my gods? As soon as you were born, your gods came with your birth certificate. So if you were Athenian, or if you were Alexandrian, or if you were Roman, or whoever you were, your gods were given to you at your birth. And it, and it never occurred to you to question, oh, gee, I have to decide who my proper gods are. They mm-hmm. were just part of your ethnicity, part of your, your, your uh, civic, your national identity. Jews uh, were thought of as a nation, even though they were scattered throughout the Roman Empire and lived in various cities in the so-called diaspora. They were still regarded and regarded themselves, it appears, uh, dominantly as an ethnos, as a, mm-hmm. as a people, uh, a nation in that sense. Uh, even though they didn't have their own independent political structures, they were, uh, as, as an ethnos, they were a people. And uh, it was one of the features, yes, of their culture, religion, slash, all one thing together again, remember. One of the distinguishing features of this people was their stubborn refusal to join in the worship of any god other than their own. This was seen as objectionable and, um, and antisocial and, you know, odious in the eyes of many people. But the one thing that made it sort of halfway legitimate for many people was 
As I say, religion is tied to ethnicity. In the case of the Jews, it was well known that their ethnic collective stance was this kind of refusal to participate in other gods. So most people wrote it off and just simply said, okay, it's stupid or it's, um, it's uh, objectionable to us, but it's their national custom. And the Romans and most people in the Roman Empire allowed each nation a wide berth as to its national customs, their food, their dress, their marriage customs, and so on. Romans commented, for example, that the, the Egyptians worshipped uh, animals, you know, uh, frogs and crocodiles and, and hyenas and so on. And they thought, this was, this is ridiculous. For the, for the Romans and the Greeks, you never had animals images. You always had uh, human images of the gods. And they thought, these stupid Egyptians, their gods are animal things. But it, it's their custom. Leave them alone. Uh, you, you wouldn't try to stop them. So the Jews were sort of regarded as this odd group of people who didn't fit in, but it was quasi-legitimate because it was their, it was their ethnos. Mm -hmm. In the case of Christianity, at a very early point, what became Christianity, eventually, initially it was, of course, a, a Jewish renewal movement, but very quickly it becomes both translocal and transethnic, making uh, adherents, recruiting adherents from not only Jews, but increasingly from non-Jewish or Gentile populations in various places. And the problem is that, uh, you know, if you were a pagan, let's say, and you buy the Christian gospel and become an adherent, you would then forsake the worship of your family gods, your city gods, and so on. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, by, by Tuesday, you're still a pagan. The following week, maybe you... <laughs> You've become uh, a convert, baptized, and now you don't uh, you don't participate in the things that you participated in maybe only a few days earlier, a few weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have no and you have no ethnic justification for this, right. because in Judaism, if you if you become a proselyte to Judaism, you forsake your family, you forsake your national identity, and you join the Jewish ethnos. So you you were a pagan. But you've now become a Jew, and so you partake of the cultural legitimacy of that of the practices of that ethnos. Mm -hmm. But as a Christian, you didn't forsake your family, you didn't forsake your ethnic background. You remained what you were: Syrian, Egyptian, Greek, Roman, whatever. But you were expected to forsake all of your previous religious activities and confine them uh, to and confine your religious activities to this new one God. So you had no, in terms of the grammar or logic of the time, you had no uh, basis, no legitimacy in rejecting the gods because they were given to you by birth. You didn't, you hadn't changed nationality or anything like that. And so what possible right did you have not to participate in reverencing the gods of your people? You know, Robert Louis Wilkins, in his book, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, also said that uh, Jews were also able to get past because their religion was ancient. Yes. In that if you were ancient, where your origins were closer to that of the gods, so you got a free pass. But when the Christians showed up, their belief was seen as new, which meant it was viewed with suspicion. That's also why the apologists wrote and said, our beliefs are neither new nor strange. And try to connect with ancient beliefs. That's right. Yeah, and new was regarded with suspicion in the realm of religion, and um, and ancient you know, gave it a certain legitimacy. And that's true, as I say, the 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 legitimacy or the 
quasi-legitimacy granted to Jewish religion in the time was that it it was, and so far back as people could determine, it always had been the national stance, the ethnic stance of the Jewish people as a people. And uh, and so, as I say, it was considered bizarre and objectionable. Uh, but, you know, as I, as I say in the book, the, the attitude of most people was every nation has its own peculiarities and the Jews more so. Mm-hmm. But it was their ethnic peculiarity. Christians were not regarded as, because they were made up of various nations, they didn't, they weren't a, a national entity. Uh, they, they could not claim, you know, you as an individual pagan who became a Christian could not claim any ethnic basis or historic justification for your stance. You had been disloyal to your people, to your family, to your city, and you had no basis in law or in custom for doing so. Yeah, yeah and we you were talking about the whole individualistic idea as we're about how all this was seen as a collective thing, which is actually contrast to our individualism, I should be saying, in that that's something that I remember reading, it might have even been in your book, but the, the whole idea in that kind of culture was that usually if you met one person from a group, you'd met all of them. And today we talk about how uh, everyone's an individual and you don't need to offend anyone such that if you stood up in the past and said what's found in Titus, for instance, that all Cretans are liars, most people would probably look and say, yep, all Cretans are liars. The Cretans themselves might stand up and say, yep, we sure are. <laughs> yes, there, uh, every every uh, culture, every ethnos in that mm-hmm. Roman setting had its stereotype, so to speak, of every other ethnic mm-hmm. group. Living as I do in a European situation, I find that, frankly, that's still the case. Every, you know, uh, the, the, the French have a stereotype, all Germans are this, all Dutch are this, all British are this, all Italians are this, all Spanish are this. And if you go to any one of the others, they have stereotypes of the French and all the other peoples as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> that, that seems to go all the way back into that setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, cultural stereotypes are, are just a commonplace um, feature of, of us, I guess. When I'm uh, giving a defense of a resurrection in places, one of the things that I'll point out is that people like Paul and James converted to Christianity. And there must have been something that made them think, by God, I need to switch my religious status, as it were. And usually the response I get is, well, people convert for many reasons. But that's really putting a modern spin on things, isn't it? Uh in a sense, yes. Uh, it's true that you have more of a, a collectivist uh, mentality in that ancient Roman setting. But, uh, you know, we, if, you, if you read the letters, in, like Paul's letters in the New Testament, he will refer to, um, say, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he seems to presuppose a situation where you have a, a Christian man, a former pagan, uh, who's now become a Christian, whose wife is not. And vice versa, uh, a Christian woman uh, or a believing woman whose husband is an unbelieving pagan, and uh, and so on. So it, it does look as though there was a surprising level of individual choice in mm-hmm. matters of religion uh, in the Roman world. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, you had both things going on, this very strong collectivist um, dynamic, but also in matters of religion and philosophy, uh, not just early Christianity, but you had numerous 
so-called voluntaristic religious movements, uh, ISIS, ISISism, Mithraism, mm-hmm. numerous other new religious movements of the time, which you joined as an individual, not as a family or as a group. And um, so there, there was this kind of individual choice, exercise of individual choice um, as well. Coming back to people like Paul and James, if you don't mind me being a pedant for a moment, uh, I, I wouldn't say that Paul thought of himself as changing his religion. I wouldn't either, actually. Uh, uh, Paul and James and people like that, it seems to me, would insist, no, no, I am still a devoted observer of the God of my ancestors. It's just that the God of my ancestors has shown me that the way I am to uh, obey him now uh, is to recognize his son, Jesus, whom he has made Lord and Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so... uh, uh, in a sense, you know, the, this is, as you may know, this is an argument that's gone on in scholarly circles for the last 30, 40 years. Is it appropriate to speak of Paul as a convert, mm-hmm. to convert, mm-hmm. you know, from one, because we usually think of conversion as one religion to another. And, um, and, and so many of, many of us would say, well, mm, no, it doesn't quite fit Paul to say he converted. There's this very striking book by uh, Pamela Eisenbaum that came out a few years back entitled Paul Was Not a Christian. I was actually about to mention that book. And, uh, uh, you know, at, at one level, she's certainly correct. He was not a Christian, as yeah. we mean the word Christian. And, as, yeah. and of course, Pamela is a, is a Jewish woman. And as Jews typically use the word Christian, they mean a religion of non-Jews. So if you become a Christian, in the eyes of many Jews, mm. they would think of it as forsaking the Jewish people and joining, you know, forsaking your nation and your Jewish loyalty and becoming something else. Mm. Well, mm. whatever you think of that definition... That's the definition that is often um, operated by amongst Jewish people to this day. Right. And certainly, if you accept that for a moment, in that sense, no, Paul did not become a Christian. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, the earliest, as you, as you may know, the earliest references to people being called Christians, uh, according to the book of Acts, are, is a few years into the uh, Christian movement in Antioch of Syria. Right. And even there, it seems to be not a term that's worn by believers themselves, but rather a kind of um, pejorative term that was used by critics and outsiders initially. Mm-hmm. The analogies, I guess, would be the way in which the term Mormon was originally uh, similarly used as a pejorative term for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. And then, after a long, long time today, you know, what people we call Mormons would say, yes, I am a Mormon. So they, they wear the term. And the term Christian seems to have arisen in a similar kind of way. Originally an outsider term, and by some time, perhaps in the late first century, uh, the earliest references we have to it as a positive usage is in 1 Peter, you know, which is right. written somewhere 70 to 120 AD. Um, and there, that seems to be the earliest case where a term that originated as an outsider term has been taken on mm-hmm. and worn by believers. Yeah. When I read uh, Pamela Edersheim's book, the, the concern I had with it was, I mean, there was a whole lot of good material, there's a lot of excellent stuff in there, and it's really impressive to have a, a Jewish PhD out there, and New Testament doesn't identify as a Christian, but the end of her, the problem was, she never came out of a book and explicitly stated what was meant by a Christian, and no, that's right. And that kind of undermined the whole thing to me. It, the, it's it's fairly clear that the the, the stance that uh, that she took in the book is mm-hmm. what's called a um, a kind of um, 
two-covenant uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a line in the book, for example, where she says, Jesus saves, but he only saves Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and her argument is, you know, that Jews do not need a savior. Uh, so Jesus has a certain legitimacy as a savior, and Christianity mm-hmm. has a certain legitimacy, but it's a religion for Gentiles. It's not a religion mm-hmm. for Jews. Um, that I think, uh, I think with, with respect, I like her very much. She's a wonderful, wonderful lady, but I have to say, I think that that is a serious misreading of Paul and of other Jewish believers in the first century. Galatians two, it seems to me, his confrontation with Peter says, we are not godless Gentiles, but we have put faith in Jesus, Mm -hmm. uh, because we know that this is, uh, this is now required. So uh, I'm sorry, I, I have to dissent from uh, Professor Eisenbaum on that question, and um, uh, it seems to me quite clear that that Jesus, that uh, Paul and early believers uh, regarded um, uh, believing in Jesus as incumbent on Jews as well as on Gentiles. Yeah, I but it is, I think for Paul and James, they were looking and said, we're Jews, we've been Jews to our dying day, because in the differences from us, in other words, is we just believe that our Jewish Messiah has come, and we trust in Him. And what could be more Jewish for us than believing in the Messiah? Yes, that that would be their stance, and uh, and it is, I suppose, still the stance of Jewish believers today, mm-hmm. uh, and those who are um, uh, in in that setting and in and in this setting as well. That becomes then a point of rather sharp sharp differentiation between Jewish believers in Jesus and other Jews. Well, on the other hand, though, when we talk about uh, changing your religious stance, as it were, even if we don't use the word conversion, if someone became a Christian, this wouldn't be just like in modern times, we say, oh, well, I was a Christian and now I'm a Muslim, or I was a Muslim, now I'm a Hindu. We say, oh, well, okay, you know, if you found something that works for you, if you found something that makes you happy, okay, they would have looked more said, why are you doing this? Why are you abandoning your heritage? Something like that, right? Yes. Um, the, the 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 problem wasn't just. I mean, you you could become, <laughs> you could be, you could take up new religions. That was not a problem. So, right. for example, you you could become a follower of Mithras. Mm. You could become a devotee of Isis or other of these new religious movements. Mm. That wasn't a problem. The particular, again, the distinctive problem about early Christianity was that it wasn't simply a new religion. This new religion required you to renounce all of your other religious loyalties. Right. And this was true. This this is a unique feature of early Christianity as a mm. new religious movement. You know, as I say, Judaism had the same kind of stance, but it did not. Uh, it did not have the same kind of trans-ethnic program, you might say, of recruitment, the way early Christianity did. Mm-hmm. So so what you have here is a, a new religious movement, as it comes to be identified, uh, initially a new movement within Judaism, and then becoming something of a, of a distinguishable religious movement in its own right by the late first century or so. And, um, uh, and this religious movement was not simply something additional or new, it was exclusive. Mm-hmm. It was the only new religious movement that required that kind of exclusivist stance. And so, yes, you, you could come home, you know, as a, I don't know, <laughs> a young man come home to your parents and say, hey, mom and dad, you know, in the Roman world, or 
words to that effect. Hey, Mom and Dad, I've decided I'm going to become a follower of Mithras. I mean, I'm in the army after all, and it seems like a lot of my, my pals in the army are followers of Mithras, so I'm going to be out Wednesday nights hereafter with my mates, uh, you know, in a Mithras meeting. And they might say, well, good on you, son. That's fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we, shall we gather together and worship the family gods now? And you would go, yeah, sure. Okay. So there's no problem. Right. But if you are a Christian and you come, if you if you're one of you know, the same guy and you come home and you say, "Hey, mom and dad, I've decided I've become baptized and I've got I've become a follower of this Jesus of Nazareth," and so just want to let you know, I won't be participating in worshiping the family gods anymore. I won't be going along to worship the city gods anymore. I can't go to certain dinners where the gods are reverenced anymore. Uh, you know, that would be tantamount to basically uh, disenfranchising yours in their eyes. Disenfranchising mm-hmm. yourself from your from your family, from your city, and so on. So it was it was a, a a categorically distinct, unique kind of move, and I hope you can understand quite objectionable, quite quite yes. offensive to mm-hmm. to to anybody uh, in in the pagan world at the time. Because mm-hmm. it would just ultimately be going up to Arvin and saying, you know, you all are can. You're taking part in idolatry. You're worshiping a bunch of false, phony gods that aren't even there, and you really need to get in line and worship the one true God. Insofar as that sort of rhetoric went on, yes, you can see that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but simply, mm-hmm. you know, that that would have been, you know, that would have sort of been like uh, exploding uh, gasoline mm-hmm. in the fire. But but it would have been offensive simply if all you did was to say, um, you know, I'm. Uh, I can't participate in the worship of the family gods anymore. Mm-hmm. That would have been offensive by itself because right. that was one of the ways, one of the key ways by which you demonstrated you're a member of this family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know what the equivalent would be today, but if I suppose, you know, if 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 somebody were living at home, a child, a grown child, maybe living at home, and sort of announced to the family, by the way, I won't be eating any meals with the family anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would sort of be an equivalent kind of deeply offensive kind of action. You know, mm-hmm. No offense, I hope. I just won't be eating with you people anymore. Well, no offense intended, but certainly a great offense would be taken mm-hmm. because eating together, for example, for us perhaps uh, in our world is one of the ways by which you demonstrate, yeah, I'm a member of this family. Yeah, uh, it, It's hard to find something equivalent to the offensiveness of early Christianity in that setting. But... Yeah. Um, if you go to places in, you know, in Asia, uh, where, for example, Christianity is not the dominant uh, religion, uh, there you 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 will see something more of what it means for individuals. I I had a former student from uh, from Hong Kong, and I asked her once, it was her family Christian. She said no, that they were traditionalist. Um, uh, followed traditionalist Chinese religion, which involved the worship of the ancestors and so on. And so I said, well, how do you negotiate that, your life with them? And she said, well, when we have a family gathering, they put up the images of the ancestors. And she said, I go to the, I go to the event, but I stand at the back. I don't go down and make an offering. I stand at the back. And it's my way of saying, I can't participate in the worship of the ancestors, but I am here. I'm a member of this family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was her way of trying to negotiate her existence. We don't we don't readily understand what it uh, what kind of um, a similar kind of thing had to go on, but but 
that negotiating your existence in practically every area of life was necessary by becoming a Christian. And we like to think of the Roman Empire as a pluralistic and tolerant society, and to an extent it was, but only insofar as you didn't really disagree with them. I mean, if a Christians had come to the Roman Empire and said, hey, we'd like to uh, tell you about this God, Jesus, and we'd like to have him included in the Roman pantheon as one among many, they probably would have said, well, oh, he's a newbie, but uh, sure, sure, we can do it. But when you come and say, hey, we're here to talk about Jesus, and he's not one among many, he's the one and only, and your gods are wrong, all of a sudden they're not going to be as tolerant. No, that, that's, that's, gone, that's gone beyond. I mean, as you say, they're, they're quite tolerant. They're, they're, they're were, there was a whole you know, cafeteria of deities in the Roman yeah. world. The Romans conquered various peoples and were always quite happy to affirm and in many cases even provide financial support <clears throat> mm-hmm. for offerings made to the gods of Egypt or mm-hmm. Greece or various countries. Uh, were quite tolerant, including, of course, as we indicated earlier, even tolerant of Judaism's refusal to participate in the worship of other gods. They were even ready mm-hmm. to tolerate that, right. because it was their, you know, their historic, traditional, ethnic mm-hmm. dance. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a lot of um, of leeway, but uh, the early Christian stance, uh, as I say, had no ethnic justification, but was this um, what was deemed to be uh, this abrasive. Um, uh, hurtful, uh, uh, deeply offensive uh, refusal to recognize the gods, the traditional gods, and thereby calling into question the foundations of almost every almost every area of life. Mm-hmm. And then we can get to the title of destroyer of the gods again, because this is one way that because Christianity won out in the end, it totally changed our world even to this day. If we talk about atheistic writers today, you have the God delusion by Dawkins. You don't have the God's delusion. Yes. You don't have gods are not great or gods the failed hypothesis. Everyone, if even if they're an atheist, they usually say, unless they're trying to make a mocking point of such, you usually say, no, I don't believe in God. It's not, I don't believe in gods. It's mm-hmm. it's, all, it's like it's assumed where if there's a God, there's one of them, but the Romans would never have made that assumption. No, that and and in the history of the world altogether, and 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 really uh, to this day, in mm-hmm. if you if you at this moment if you did a a canvassing of religious attitudes of people around the world, you would find still large sectors of the world would find that a bizarre idea that there's mm-hmm. only one God. They they would think of there being, of course there, of course there can't be one God. There has to be many gods. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have to have. Uh, now, in some cases, they might posit a kind of Uber God, you know, behind yeah. all the gods, a kind of core, core master, God. master yeah. deity out of whom the other gods come, mm-hmm. but uh, a high god of some sort. Typically, where that notion obtains, the high god is inaccessible. You you posit a high god as some coherence behind all the multiplicity of gods, but you can't directly approach the high god, and so you posit such a high god, but you actually do business with all of the particular deities. Mm-hmm. And most people in human history, that's that's what they've thought of as being perfectly reasonable view. And the notion that there could be a one God who was directly accessible uh, was was a bizarre notion. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we, as I would say in one part of the book, if you were to go into the street of a modern Western city and ask people, do you believe in God in those terms, you would probably get three answers, yes, no, or I'm not sure. Nobody would stop to ask you, which God are we talking about? Mm-hmm. As you say, even uh, uh, even Western atheists assume that there's only one God to doubt. <laughs> that notion is basically due to the influence of Christianity in Western culture. Mm-hmm. And one other aspect we should talk about is the aspect of identity. If you pick up, say, a biography by Plutarch, and you read and you hear a story about where this man is the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, and he's in this city and such, you already have a pretty good idea about the identity of who you're dealing with. Okay, this family has this characteristic, this city, this people has this characteristic and such. And if you became a Christian, essentially you were making an identity change, weren't you? Yes. Uh, one of the points that I uh, argue in the book is that... Um, we today think of um, what, what I would call a religious identity as, again, a separate sort of detachable thing, separable from your ethnicity, uh, from your politics, uh, and so on. Um, and so I say, you know, in, when, when uh, modern Western countries often have a census of their population, such as in Britain, one of the questions might be, what is your um, your national, your ethnic identity. And so if you're living in Britain as a British citizen, you might say uh, Afro-Caribbean, you might say white uh, Anglo-Saxon, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And then there'll be another question asking you, what is your religious affiliation? So you might put down Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever. We think of those as totally separable things, your ethnic identity and your religious identity. In the ancient world, they are inseparable, they are connected, Mm-hmm. Um, and um, but what I argue is that early Christianity says you you if you become a Christian adherent in the first few centuries, uh, the message is you don't give up your citizenship, you don't give up your civic association or your family identity. So you remain a member of your family, remain a citizen of your city, and remain a member of your nation. But you abandon all of the religious connections involved. And you now attach yourself to this one God. Right. And uh, what, I, what I argue is that in our terms, they didn't use this terminology, but in our terms, it looks to me as though early Christianity thereby effectively invents the notion of a, a religious identity. Mm-hmm. An, an identity that is solely based on uh, a God and is not connected to your ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to people, I always tell them also about the unique identity that Christians would have been taking on would have been seen as even more bizarre because you have been identifying with Jesus, as it were. So if you went to a Jew and tried and tell them about your religion, anyway, you identify with that guy who was crucified. Well, if he was crucified, he's under the curse of Yahweh. Why would you want that? You go up to a Gentile and say, I mean, this, this guy was crucified, then he's a traitor to Rome. End of story. No Messiah right there. That, that's how bizarre the identity was to them. Yes, the, uh, the, the figure of Jesus was, uh, as, as you know, the famous words of Paul, uh, mm-hmm. 
uh, uh, foolishness to the Gentiles and a mm-hmm. stumbling block to Jews. Mm-hmm. So it, it, the figure of Jesus uh, was offensive um, for all the reasons you've indicated. Um, in Jewish tradition uh, and in uh, pagan tradition, uh, there were the great heroic figures, great heroic individuals who could be seen to be almost godlike in their in their stance. I mean, look at the way the Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria can refer to Moses and can describe him as a as a godlike being. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's just enormous. It was safe and it was convenient. It was it was uh, possible to do that with a human individual from you know ancient days, from from long time past or from timeless past. So someone like Moses or Enoch or someone like a Homer could be described as, uh, you know, partaking of divine qualities. But, or Hercules, for instance. Hercules. But, uh, uh, so you could have sort of human, you know, deified humans in that sense from ancient times. But it was highly um, unusual, shall we say, to put it mildly, uh, to take a near contemporary, a historical figure such as Jesus and to ascribe to him that kind of status. Um, probably the only competitor that I can think of, the only competitive or roughly analogous thing, is the way in which across the first century in particular and thereafter, uh, the Roman emperor, the living Roman emperor, mm-hmm. came to be seen as partaking in some sort of way uh, of divine status and divine qualities. But other than that, and again, you know, you say, well, okay, he's a he's a living contemporary. Yeah, but the emperor isn't simply any ordinary bloke. He's sort of a unique figure. But that would probably be the only, uh, I would say, compelling analogy I could find, I could think of, for an individual who acquired, uh, you know, within uh, uh, within only a few years, acquired this kind of divine status. And, of course, one of the things I've argued, along with some other scholars now for nearly 40 years, is that this treatment of Jesus as participating in divine status and as sharing in the glory of God and uh, and worthy of worship along with God, this sort of treatment of Jesus uh, seems to have erupted within the first few, uh, perhaps the first few months uh, after Jesus' execution. Yeah, I was so, about to say. So it's not a slow, gradual thing. And that, that makes it all the more remarkable. As the, as the great German scholar from Tübingen, Martin Hengel, said some years back, uh, talking about the, the time frame between the crucifixion of Jesus, roughly 30 A.D., and the uh, earliest letters of Paul, roughly 50 A.D., uh, said that you know, in that 20-year period, uh, uh, more happened in Christology, more happened in terms of belief in Jesus, than in the next 700 years of Christianity. I would say that it wasn't simply in the first 20 years, that it's really probably within the first year or so at the most, Mm -hmm. that you have this kind of eruption of uh, devotion to Jesus as in some way participating in divine status. Yeah, I was about to say, I think you've written a little bit on that topic. Now, haven't you? Yes. The giant burqa, Lord Jesus Christ, and for a smaller popularized version, the burqa is called, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? Yes. Yes. Now, that also, in, in fact, for clarification, I think it was Bauckham who said something along the lines of the earliest Christology is the highest Christology. Yes, that's his formulation. Um, I, 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 uh, 
I, I understand, I think I understand what he means by it. I'm not entirely sure, but it has, it, the problem is that with that kind of rhetoric, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it all too easy invites, in my view, with respect, it, invi- it can invite some misunderstanding. And so you have, I know that there are people who take Richard to be claiming de facto that already in the first few years you have Chalcedonian Christology being yeah. taught. You don't but, have a Nicene Creed being taught. No, and, and, and Richard, you know, when you talk to him, he doesn't mean that. What he means is that already within the earliest observable moments, uh, Jesus is treated effectively as, as I say, in some way as, as uh, enfranchised, so to speak, within uh, God's name, God's glory, and having a unique status and worthy of, uh, uh, uniquely worthy of reverence along with God. In that sense, that's about as high as it gets. And I suppose a fair point can be made. You know, there's a sense in which over the next four or five hundred years of Christological debate, um, that that it isn't as though Jesus becomes elevated to be with God. He is there, connected uniquely with God the Father from the very from the very earliest moments. Over the next several centuries, mm-hmm. what Christians try to do is to come up with some sort of rationale, some sort of way of articulating that uh, in terms of the philosophical conventions of the time. Uh, they take they take a basic conviction, in other words, that Jesus shares in some way in divine status, and try to come up with a doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've emphasized myself, you know, the conviction comes first, the doctrine comes later. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's interested in a little bit more of this, I recommend going back into our archives, <clears throat> where when the book uh, How God Became Jesus came out, I had a roundtable discussion with Charles Hill, Chris Turing, and Michael Bird on this kind of topic in their book that they wrote in response to Bart Ehrman. And when you mentioned the Roman Emperor, that also got me think that, in essence, then, it could be seen as Jesus versus the Roman Emperor, because the Christians could be saying, we can either pay allegiance to to the Roman Emperor, or we can pay allegiance to Jesus. We're going with Jesus. Yes, uh, it's it, there is a uh, an un- undeniable... Um, overlap mm-hmm. or <clears throat> excuse me or a clash uh, potential clash at least between the kind of claims and the kind of titles uh, that early Christians used for Jesus and that were also appropriated and used in the imperial um, discourse imperial rhetoric of the day so you know for example one of the terms that is uh, early on applied to Jesus at a, at a uh, perhaps in the outset, is that, that he is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's always important to note that in the New Testament usage, the definite article is always used with reference to Jesus. He is the Son of God. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is to say, it, they're claiming a unique sonship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, the emperor from a very early point, from, from the time of uh, 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 Tiberius, at least, if not Augustus onward, uh, the term son of God or son of the divine Caesar, uh, the living emperor as son of the divine dead emperor, in that sense, son of a god, uh, is part of imperial <coughs> rhetoric as well. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, at some point, uh, we know that early Christians rev- revered Jesus as Lord, both in Aramaic, Mar, and in Greek, Kyrios. And uh, similarly, uh, one of the terms that was used for the emperor is the term Kyrios. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there was a kind of 
overlap and potential clash in this kind of terminology, honorific terminology. Um, when you read, when I read the earliest writings, you know, Paul's writings <clears throat> and on through uh, in, in the early decades at least, uh, I don't see them directly trying to make a, trying to pick a fight with the emperor, right. so to speak. Right. They, they, don't, <laughs> they don't directly say, you have to choose. You either revere the emperor or you revere Christ. I, I don't see that kind of either or thing being put anywhere until you get into the second century. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, for example, you have Pliny's famous, the, the <coughs> governor Pliny's famous letter to the emperor Trajan, written sometime around 1, 110 AD, something like that, <coughs> from Bithynia and Pontus, modern-day Turkey. And he talks about Christians denounced to him and what he did, uh, how he handled them, and one of the things that he says is, I, I, uh, if if they um, if they said that they were no longer Christians or never had been, I brought out images of the gods and the emperor's image, and I required them to make uh, incense offerings and show reverence for the images of the gods and the emperor's image, and to mm-hmm. curse Christ. And if they were willing to do that, I let them go. Now there, you you seem to have uh, a kind of either or thing, but it's interesting. There, the the requirement to reverence the emperor and curse Christ is being put by the Romans. The alternative, the sharp alternative, is being put by the Roman governor. Mm-hmm. And uh, similarly, in the martyrdom of Polycarp, Polycarp is urged, uh, you know, to avoid being burned and and to be avoid being martyred. And the uh, the magistrate says to him, "What harm is there in saying uh, Caesar is curious? Just say it." And we'll let you go. Uh, so there, you definitely have a, a kind of you know conflict between saying Caesar is curious or Jesus is curious. But it's very interesting. Uh, the the earliest evidence we have of a kind of sharp uh, either or you know uh, situation is is uh, coming from the pagan side, not from the Christian side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also what I mean, we should talk about for the saying better. Tacitus and other writers use that Christianity is described as a mischievous superstition. The term superstition shows up regularly. You know, in our modern world, we think of superstition such as being scared of a number 13 or a black cat crossing your path or walking mm-hmm. under a ladder. That's not what they had in mind really by superstition, is it? No, the, the Latin term superstitio was a, uh, a term used for um, uh, how would I call it, for, for illicit religion. Mm-hmm. Or it was religious activity that was deemed to be illicit or um, improper. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, we would say sort of almost like uh, underground or forbidden religion. Mm-hmm. Bad religion was superstitious. Mm-hmm. And it'd be kind of like the way we'd use to describe someone having an affair today then. I suppose, or you know, we we would say you know such and such a uh, a thing is a is a cult, yeah. You know, and 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 the term cult in popular usage uh, tends to have a kind of pejorative term. You mean okay, it's it's a it's a cult, which means it's a bad form of religion. Mm-hmm. And that would have instead been made it seem all the more pejorative. I mean, this is what you got at that uh, earlier that. Christianity was just seen as not just 
offensive in cases. It was seen as outright absurd to the people, wasn't it? Yes, and I would say it must have been seen by, uh, you know, by uh, some Roman authorities, and progressively so, as we move into the second, third century. It was also seen as dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, not simply offensive. Uh, the offensiveness of Christianity would have been experienced at all levels. You know, um, as I say, if you if you were a member of a family and announce, I'm I'm now you know a follower of the of this. Jesus movement, and so I will not be reverencing the family gods anymore. That would be deeply offensive and could get you a lot of harassment, uh, perhaps even some physical abuse. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was offensive. Uh, likewise, if you were a member of a local baker's guild and you went to the meeting of the guild, uh, they would off- always uh, offer, you know, begin open the meeting with a a libation poured out to the guardian deity of the guilt. Mm-hmm. And if you were to say, I'm sorry, I can't participate in this, I'll wait outside until that's done, or something like that, that would be offensive. So you ran the risk of offending people in practically all areas of life. But in addition to that, early Christianity was deemed to be here and there and progressively so as dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I say, its danger was because the gods and reverence for the gods were seen to uphold the society, the political order, the welfare of the world, and so on. I mean, everything depended upon the gods in some way. And and the, the, um, the uh, refusal of Christians to uh, acknowledge and to worship the gods was therefore a potential uh, threat, a potential breach, in the solidarity of the society and of the political order, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and also it was a, it was a, a Christianity could uh, have an economic impact. Uh, turn again to that letter of Pliny the uh, Pliny the Younger uh, writing to Trajan again about the Christians in his province, and one of the things he says is, is you know I'm sure that having taken the decisive action that I have taken against them, what he did was. Those who were denounced to him as Christians, if they refused to recant, if they were Roman citizens, he sent them to Rome for disposition. If they were not citizens, he executed them, uh, unless they recanted. And he says, I'm sure that with the firm, decisive action that I've taken, the temples which have been neglected will again be frequented, and those who raise animals and so on for the temples will have their living restored, and so on. Mm-hmm. See, we have to understand that in the ancient world, religion was basically focused around temples and a sacrificial system, and all of those things had a, a whole network of economic activities associated with them. If you have a sacrificial system, you have to have animals. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you license animal growers who will grow the animals under license for purchase by people to sacrifice in the temple. Then you have to have somebody who grows the fodder to feed the animals. You have people who are craftsmen who make the little shrines, the little tourist-type shrines that you, if you go to visit the temple, you might want to buy one of these little shrines and take it home with you as a, as a kind of memento of your visit, but also as a way of offering devotion to the same God in your home far away. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Yeah, or, or a little image of the God or whatever. So there, there was a whole body of industries associated with any temple complex. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have somebody who comes along saying, well, the god of this temple is rubbish, 
Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to participate in the worship of this God anymore. And goes around talking like this to his family, to his friends, to his associates, and says, by the way, and, and they say to him, you aren't going to worship in the temple anymore? No, no, because I don't believe that that God's valid. It, it's a false God. It's a demon. It's, a, it's not worthy of worship. Um, you know, if your livelihood depended upon that temple, if you were an animal grower or a craftsman or whatever, you wouldn't take kindly to somebody calling into question the validity of the God and the validity of the temple. Your livelihood could be at stake. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there was there was an economic threat of early Christianity as well, and we see this manifested as early as the account in the Book of Acts in yeah. in, in Ephesus, where the the um, uh, silversmiths and the and the artisans who are associated with the Temple of Artemis. Uh, are saying, take care of these guys. You know, they go to the city councilors and the city leaders and they say, hey, we pay taxes. You guys are supposed to take care of us. Take care of these guys. Shut mm-hmm. this thing down. Well, I'd like to remind everyone, and now you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, my guest is Dr. Larry Hurtado. We're talking about his book, Destroyer of the Gods. It's due out, it looks like September 15th is due for a release date. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it'll be out on the stand supposedly September 15th. If you go to Amazon or go to the Baylor University site, you'll see the book listed and lots of information about it and a price has already been set and description reviews. And you can actually pre-order the book now. Okay. You can pay for it and pre-order it either through Amazon or, for example, or through uh, Baylor University Press mm. and uh, pay for it and they'll, they'll ship it to you as soon as it's available. And we're talking with Dr. Larry Hurtado, and it is about the book, Destroy the Gods. But if you're listening next week, have you ever seen all these things out there about, say, the Illuminati being out there, or the New World Order, or any of these other conspiracies? A lot of Christians seem to get caught up in these, but is there really any validity to this kind of stuff? Uh, my ministry partner, J.P. Holding, is going to be coming back on the show. He, he wrote an e-book on this about a something along the lines of Jesus is a mushroom and other lies you won't believe, asking, is there really anything to Illuminati ideas or to New World Order claims or if Rothschild is really involved in a grand cover-up? So if you've got someone who's really caught in conspiracy theories, be listening next week because we're going to talk about are these really valid ways Christians should be thinking. But for now, let's get back to Dr. Larry Hurtado talking about the book Destroyer of the Gods. As I do this interview with you, I'm here in my office, and I imagine you're probably in yours. And when we're in our office, we are surrounded by these wonderful, wonderful treasures called books. They are all around us. And my, my own wife has said, can you please start using that Kindle more often? We don't have room for all the books. Yeah. Now, that's also an effect of Christianity today, isn't it? Well, uh, I would, I would, say, I, I think in the ancient world, uh, in the Roman period, there certainly mm-hmm. were a lot of books. Yeah, uh, and there certainly were a lot of texts that were being written and composed and used, and libraries that were mm-hmm. set up. Uh, George Houston, uh, by the way, one book that in the last few years by by the historian George Houston is all about ancient libraries. Uh, and how, uh, you know, well-to-do individuals, learned individuals collected books. So there certainly were books. The important thing to say is is two things. One is um, early Christianity as a religious movement, however, mm-hmm. was unique in its 
in the way in the uh, place and the role that books had in uh, in their religion. Mm-hmm. Um, in in pagan religion at the time, in general, uh, you know, you you when you when you went into the temple or engaged in the ceremonies in honor of the goddess or the god, books were not involved. You didn't read from any kind of scripture. They didn't have scriptures that you read from. You performed the right sacrifice. You said the right uh, words. Uh, and so on. The, the, that's, that was what religion was. Early Christianity, however, is, is peculiar amongst any of the traditional or uh, new religious movements in the place of uh, texts uh, that were read as part of their worship gathering. Again, the immediate analogy that one can point to is Judaism and, and the synagogue. Uh, and that, again, shows the derivation of the, what became Christianity out of that Jewish matrix. In synagogues as well, Texts, the, the, what we call the old, what Christians would call the Old Testament scriptural texts, were read regularly as part of the synagogue practice, mm-hmm. and early Christianity took that over. Uh, but as, as I say, as a as a transethnic new religious movement, it was uh, the only such movement in mm-hmm. which texts played that kind of role. The Christians then, however, didn't simply continue reading Old Testament texts; they produced new ones, mm-hmm. and so from the letters of the Apostle Paul onward. They produce new texts of their own, and by my calculation, by um, by one index of early Christian writings, if we track on down to about the year 250 or so, there are over 200 Christian books that we that we know of that were written in that period from the first two 200 years or so of Christianity. Mm-hmm. So it's a, and, and keep in mind, this is a very small religious movement at this point, really. Right. Only a few tens of thousands, maybe, or by the year 200, maybe 100, maybe 200,000 people worldwide. And so it's a phenomenal literary output for such a small religious movement. So that's another way that it's distinctive. But the thing that has probably shaped the books that are on our shelves today the most is that the books on our shelves are what we call leaf books. That is, they are books where you turn pages. You have a binding and you turn the pages and the print appears on both sides of the, of the leaf. That kind of book is is uh, is very unusual in the Roman world. Um, in the first and second century, for example, of all of the manuscripts that we know of, um, less than five percent are uh, leaf books of the time called a codex. Right. <clears throat> uh, about five percent total, mm-hmm. and these tend to be non-literary texts. That is, the codex tends to be used for. Uh, medicinal re- recipes or astronomical tables or things that you consult, but you don't read through. So uh, poetry, uh, novels, history would not be put typically in the form of a codex at this point. Right. Early Christianity, however, from the earliest point that we can uh, find any Christian text, overwhelmingly preferred the codex. And so in the second and third century, uh, those writings that are, that are identified as Christians are about 75 to 80 percent codexes, whereas in the larger uh, environment of the time, it's about 90 percent rolls, book rolls. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this tremendous difference. Um, after the uh, after the uh, uh, affirmation of Christianity by Constantine in the fourth century, it's interesting. Uh, in the fourth century and thereafter, the uh, ratio of codex to book roll shifts markedly. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the 4th, 5th century, 
the majority of, of um, books that we know of are codexes, that is, leaf books. So one question, of course, that, that is worth asking is, was it the um, uh, imperial affirmation of Christianity and sort of the adoption of Christianity as official, official religion of the Roman Empire in the late 4th century? Was it the sort of triumph, so to speak, of Christianity that uh, helped uh, or led to the uh, success of the Codex producing the modern leaf book that we now have? Mm-hmm. I don't know that we can answer that question one or the other, but it is very, how would I put it, uh, it it's very uh, conspicuous mm-hmm. that the triumph of Christianity and the triumph of the Codex go hand in hand, contemporaneously. Do you have any ideas as to why the Christians preferred the Codex as opposed to the scroll? Uh, we, they didn't leave us any notes. Right. <laughs> so we can't, uh, we, we don't have any first-hand evidence. Uh, I would, uh, there, there are two different, uh, various points of view, but they fall into two different camps. One camp tends to say the Christians preferred the Codex because it had some sort of practical advantage. Um, and uh, we can talk about that if you want, but I don't find any of the so-called practical advantages persuasive. Okay. Um, it would require, for one thing, as I say, as I said often, it would require us to say that of all the people in the Roman period, only the Christians were able to perceive the obvious superiority of the Codex. Mm-hmm. Now, I love my Christian forebears uh, back in that period, but there's something deeply counterintuitive to say that everybody else in the Roman world was stupid and only the Christians could perceive the obvious superiority of the Codex. There's some, that, that just doesn't sound right to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I tend to think that, um, that the, the uh, uh, overwhelming preference for the Codex, whatever the original impetus for using the Codex the first time, thereafter the preference for the Codex must have been deliberate mm-hmm. uh, and must have been an attempt to uh, to favor the codex and and to and and by the physical form of the book uh, to give expression to a Christian preference, mm-hmm. uh, distinguishing uh, to, in some sense to distinguish Christian scriptural books in particular from non-Christian writings. I also think it's important about <clears throat> the extensive literary output the early Christians had. We had a. Rodney Reeves and Randy Richards on David Cape's script make it talk about their book that came out recently, Rediscovering Paul, yeah. and how uh, writing back then it was very, very expensive that a book such as Galatians could cost 500 bucks by today's standards just to write, and that's not counting delivering it and making the copies and everything else. And the Christians had this fantastic outpouring of literature. There had to be some very upper-class people involved in the movement, too. <clears throat> well, yes, uh, obviously we, we, we think that um, it's commonly thought that only a small minority of people in the Roman world had sufficient um, literacy <clears throat> abilities uh, to be able to read um, the sometimes demanding text. I mean, you know, you, you read any of Paul's letters, even something small like Galatians, but go to something like Romans, my heavens, you know, I mean, th- th- those, those books still generate um, extensive head-scratching among scholars mm-hmm. and extensive <laughs> efforts to try to articulate what they're saying. So 
uh, even a surface reading of the book, uh, you know, just to get the basic idea of it for an English reader today, uh, requires a certain um, good level of literacy. Mm-hmm. And we think that, that only a small minority of people in the mm-hmm. Roman world had, had that sort of literary, uh, literacy abilities. Mm-hmm. So that must mean, now they didn't have to come from higher classes, but they, they at least had, you know, had to be people who had, under some circumstances, some level of education. So there were at least those kinds of people uh, in Christianity who wrote these writings and who served to read them for the benefit of the many who, uh, who could not read. Um, the, yes, there, there, were, there was an impressive amount of financial resources placed into the production of these texts because, yes, the writing material uh, and the time to make copies all involved uh, time or money. Uh, disseminating copies from one church to another, there was no postal system available for public usage. Mm-hmm. And so all letters or texts or other things had to be sent just the way goods were sent by either by uh, engaging a tradesman, a, a, a merchantman who was traveling to take the item, the letter or the goods, and deliver it for a fee, sort of like a modern-day courier service, mm-hmm. or else to assign a member of the church to take the letter and hand-deliver it to another church, where you still had to pay for his food, and you know uh, it was still an expense involved, even if you sent it by the hand of a, a member of your church. So all of this involved is a tremendous, impressive amount of financial and, um, and other resources in uh, composing, uh, making copies, and uh, disseminating, effectively publishing and disseminating copies of these various Christian texts. And they did so uh, on a, almost, a, <laughs> almost a kind of maniacal way. I mean, it's quite clear that, that there was a lot of just sort of a flurry of activity going on all, all through this period. Mm-hmm. When you and I were talking pre-show, we were talking a lot about uh, ideas that are popular on the Internet and have really died in scholarly circles over and over, like Jesus' mythicism and the dying and rising gods idea. And one such idea often comes up is, for instance, Jesus being copied from Mithras. And sometimes I hear have people say, this goes to the idea of how Jesus was a bookish religion. We say, where this text in the New Testament was copied from this text in, Mith- in the Mithraic scriptures. And I was going to say, really? Please, uh, go and find me these Mithraic scriptures that you're talking about and show me where this is written. And if you have any of them, contact your local museum immediately. They want to see these texts. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it would be. Uh, it would be a sensational find. Uh, uh, I, I agree, and uh, there, there, there is no evidence nor any reference to any such text anywhere mm-hmm. in antiquity. So, um, no, it's the, the 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 suddenness, the sudden way in which what we call early Christianity appears, mm-hmm. the sudden way in which Jesus uh, acquires, so to speak, this kind of divine status. Mm-hmm. And the prolific production of texts, right from Paul's letters onward, and and even earlier, no doubt there were uh, writings now lost to us. Uh, the, uh, the 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 very rapid translocal spread of early Christianity across the Eastern Empire initially, and then uh, further westward. All of this is really uh, remarkable, and uh, so it's understandable, thoroughly understandable to me that people will say, oh, this, this could only 
be explained by it being adopted from some previous thing because it's just too much to happen suddenly. Uh, it has to have been, you know, borrowed or derived from some previous thing. That's a perfectly reasonable supposition, and it's it's entirely understandable to me that people who don't know better would would say would buy that sort of idea because it it's the natural thing to assume. The problem is it goes directly against all of the evidence. All of the evidence indicates that there was no real predecessor for the thing we call Christianity. Uh, that Jesus does acquire this kind of divine status explosively quickly and remarkably early, and that this uh, proliferation of texts that we see, uh, the four Gospels, for example. I mean, people, there were there were emperors around, you know, great men who controlled 30 legions of troops and could, you know, rule the empire, and there were little biographical sketches written about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stonius, for example, in his Lives of the Caesars, uh, there were biographical sketches written of these figures, but the size of the four canonical Gospels alone, not counting the, the others, the four Gospels that made their way into the New Testament alone, each of them is a sizable, ambitious, biographical, so to speak, type account. Mm-hmm. Any one of them being written would be remarkable. To have mm-hmm. four written within perhaps a decade or so of each other is astonishing. Mm-hmm. There's, just, there's no other literary phenomenon in the Roman period to match that alone. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I know that people will think, oh, come on, that's just, that's just too incredible to believe. It is incredible, but it's true. Right. It seems to be what happened. And it looks like since Christianity came along that now, whenever a new religious movement does rise up, it seems just natural that there's going to be some religious text. Or if you have... Muhammad showing up, all of a sudden, hey, here's the Quran. If you have Joseph Smith, here's the Book of Mormon, here's all these other writings, and so much, that, so that when we look at it, we say, well, there is a religion, and this religion has various scriptures and such. But go back to the Roman Empire, and Judaism, before Christianity came along, was the only religion that really had its scriptures. All the others just went by traditions and or beliefs and things of that sort, right? Yes, that's true. Yes, uh, the, the the in in the Roman period, um, uh, sacred texts, so to speak, or texts of any kind, are not really a feature mm. of the religious activities of any other religious group of of mm. the time, other than uh, Judaism and early Christianity. Certainly not in the same way. When you have, you know, of course, the the um, um, sacred tablets that are kept in the Roman Forum. Uh, that govern uh, the the sacrificial rites and so on of the traditional Roman religion, but these are these sacred tablets or whatever are kept there are consulted by priests, but they do not form part of the so-called liturgy. You might say in the way in which in traditional Judaism and traditional Christianity, when you get together in church or in synagogue for worship, mm. you read a text and a reading of a text, at least in the in the traditional liturgical forms of Christianity, you read scripture. That's a coherent, that's an uh, integral part of the worship practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in traditional liturgical circles, you have a reading from the Old Testament, you have a reading from the Psalms, you have a reading from the Epistles, and you have a reading from the Gospels. Four chunks of scripture are read mm-hmm. as an integral part of the worship service. That's mm-hmm. just without parallel. 
in the ancient mm-hmm. setting. Yeah. It could also be because in the ancient world that you wanted to keep your... A lot of the rituals were kind of like an in-house tray that you didn't want to share. Yes, you have some that are so-called mystery cults. Uh, Mithras, you mentioned, is one. Yeah. Uh, we One of the things about Mithraism is that we, we know only a limited amount about what the rituals were or even about what the iconography was. I mean, if you go to, to, to look at some of these uh, Mithraeums, that is, these places of Mithraic worship that have been excavated uh, in various places, uh, you will see that uh, typically you have uh, a rather elaborate um, iconography. You have the, the figure of Mithras slaying the bull. Uh, you have a scorpion. You have um, you know little other uh, mm-hmm. things that are pictured around it. And um, we're not entirely sure what these things represent. I mean, you know, what is the bull? What is the scorpion that, by the way, happens to be biting the testicles of the bull? What on earth does that mean? We have no idea. Um, Obviously, these these things were were, uh, central in their religious imagination in some way. But uh, we don't know what they were because, not just, not primarily or even because, they kept them secret. I mean, I suppose there was a certain amount of secrecy, but they never wrote them down. Right. They never. They didn't write texts. So here's the ironic thing: we know about Mithraism, and we can trace it through its shrines, through these Mithraeums that appear all the way or up through Germany into um, into even in Britain down near Newcastle and so on. Wherever the Roman army was stationed, <clears throat> Mithras seems to have gone. Mm-hmm. And we can track the progress of Mithraism through these Mithraeums, these shrines, and their physical images that they left, but no texts. Mm-hmm. Early Christianity in the first two centuries, first two or three centuries, no shrines, no temples, no altars, no sacrifices, no priests, none of these physical implements, except for a massive body of texts. Mm-hmm. So the uh, th- this is, uh, you know, one of the uh, discussions that I've had was, is with a friend of mine, dear friend and, and, and highly respected scholar, Edwin Judge from Macquarie University in Australia, who's a fabulous uh, friend and, and expert on the Roman uh, ancient setting. And uh, when I was discussing my book with him and talking about how I was going to be arguing that early Christianity was a novel kind of religion, he came back and said, you must not call Christianity a religion. It was not a religion in any way that you would recognize it in the Roman world. It didn't have temples. It didn't have sacrifices, shrines, priests. <clears throat> That's what constitutes religion in the ancient world. And Christianity in those terms was not a religion. <laughs> and I said, okay, uh, I agree with you, uh, Edwin. I take your point. I'm going to call it a different kind of religion. Because if I say early Christianity wasn't a religion... My readers won't know what the devil it is I'm trying to say. Mm. But it is such an unusual religion that, you know, a respected figure such as Professor Judge can try to make that point. Mm-hmm. I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm interviewing Larry Hurtado today about his book, Destroyer of the Gods. And I want you to remind you all that everything we do here, it's listener-supported. So if you want to uh, support us, please consider going to the website at deeperwaters.ddns.net. There's a link, Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And in that, you'll find a link. And 
You click on that and you'll go to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. That's the Ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you have. Those are my in-laws. And they handle the donation side. My mother-in-law is a financial guru. And she knows the tax rules and everything like that. And we want everything to be tax deductible. So yes, she handles that. So you go and you make your donation. Then you have to contact me or Allie, my wife, or Mike and Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they'll make sure we get your donation. If you can set yourself up to be a monthly donor, that's even better. We really rely on you so much. I wish there was something more I could do to thank you, but right now, there really isn't. Hopefully, someday, there will be. And if you can't do that, you can also go to the Amazon store and pick up some books. In fact, books that I've either written or co-written, there are e-books right now, such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions. And one that I wrote solely on my own, A Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian. And then there's yet another way you can support us that a good friend of the ministry set up, and that's jewelry. Guys, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but for women in your life, tend to like jewelry. So if you want to get that lady a certain special or something, because she's just so special, why not go to a jewelry store? You can go to a link from our page, and 25% of every purchase goes towards deeper waters. And if you need some help with that, just get in touch with me or get in touch with Lena Clester, who runs that, and we'll get it taken care of. And... Uh, Guys, this is a great way you can do it. You can help uh, your lady and show her how much you care about her. Or you can make up for that past screw-up that you did with her. Or you can make up for that future screw-up that I know you're going to do with her. And I, I speak from experience as a married man. I, I'm certain I am going to do a whole lot more screw-ups around Allie. And if you can't do that, at least uh, consider going to iTunes and leaving a positive review of a Deeper Waters podcast. And share it with friends, family, and if you really like the show, also get in touch with me. Let me know just that, hey, I like your show. I, I enjoy listening to it. I really appreciate you, man. If you have any ideas for a topic you'd like to have on or a guest you'd like to have on, share them with me. I'm open to consideration. I can't guarantee a yes after all, but I'm open. And Dr. Hartardo, do you have a ministry or organization, charity, something you'd like to see people donate to? Well, I think right now uh, one of the things I would mention maybe is uh, is Christian Aid, uh, mm -hmm. because I think they do a good work in uh, development and in aid work in uh, various parts of the world, and uh, there are lots of hot spots where their where their work is needed. So um, I hope that you know if you get on the internet or whatever, you can find a, a Christian Aid site where you can make a donation. Okay, and we just go to our website and type in Christian Aid, or just go on our browsers and type that in. And is it specifically called Christian Aid or what? Christian, Christian Aid, yeah, it's it's um it, it's a UK based organization, but I think it has offices in mm -hmm. uh, the United States and other countries as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd suggest to my listeners go and look for that and see what you can find to help that out too. Now let's get back to the book now. Let's uh, talk about the final section. Picture a good family man. He's away from his family. He's out 
maybe on a military march or something of that sort. And he sends a letter home to his wife saying, Honey, I love you. I thank so much of you. You're such a special lady in my life. I'm so excited to know that you're about to have a kid. If it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, just leave it to die. Love you. Bye. And the, the mother at that time probably wouldn't think a thing about that letter. That, oh, it's just another letter from a hubby. We find that scandalous today. Yes. Yes, I cite that letter. That's a very famous letter written um, sometime uh, in uh, the late, uh, as I recall, sometime in the late first century BC mm-hmm. uh, from, a, from uh, a guy who's either a soldier or a businessman, I'm not sure. We, we think he may have been a soldier because he seems to be constrained, not able to come home readily. And yes, he, <clears throat> he writes home uh, very tender feelings, inquiring about his family, inquiring about the child they already have, and uh, expressing just exactly the kind of um, affection for his wife that you mentioned. And then basically says, yes, so you, you, you will have the child now or soon. If it's a boy, um, take care of it. If it's a girl, uh, discard it. Uh, and probably would have meant, therefore, she would have, uh, well, what, what, one of two things tended to be done. Either they, they actually killed the child, drowned it or something, or uh, uh, as often, if not more so, would take it out uh, outside the city to a kind of uh, rubbish heap and mm-hmm. leave it on the rubbish heap. And there were people who then cruised the rubbish heaps uh, looking for infants, and they would take them in and raise them. Those who took them in tended to be um, slave traders who, were, who would raise the child as a slave. And uh, if it was a girl particularly, uh, it would probably wind up in a brothel as a slave, a slave uh, prostitute. Mm-hmm. So the point is, yes, this guy who writes this thing is, is not a monster. Uh, he's not some kind of psychopath or anything. He's a loving family man, loving husband, uh, and inquires after his relatives and his other child. But um, um, uh, this rather, you know, ruthless form of, of dealing with unwanted children was so much a part of culture that uh, even nice guys like this thought nothing of it. Mm-hmm. You know, by our standards today, he would be seen as a monster, but in the culture back then, it was part and parcel of what happened, and it was the Christians that were people who, in fact, eventually directly challenged this kind of practice, weren't they? Yes, probably the Christians were the most uh, well-known, uh, became the most well-known at challenging this practice. I mean, mm-hmm. as you say, for us, it not only would be reprehensible, but I think in almost any Western country, it would be illegal to go to jail for it. Mm-hmm. It would be, you know, infanticide, yep. uh, criminal offense. But yeah. in that set, it was, as you say, simply part of it. There were some people who complained about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Stoic philosopher, Masonius Rufus, uh, thought that it was a bad practice and, and criticized and condemned people for doing it. Uh, so Christians weren't the only voices raised against it, but they were probably the most aggressive, the most effective at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Masonius taught his little circle of pupils um, a handful of people who spent time over two or three years learning how to be a Stoic philosopher. And so he would imbue them with his point of view. But, you know, if we think of, uh, if we compare Musonius, Rufus, and early Christianity as social projects, so to speak, as to their social impact, uh, there's no comparison. Mm-hmm. Early Christianity was far more aggressive and far more, um, you know, uh, it, uh, it, it took this kind of view, so to speak, 
to the streets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and um, all Christian adherents were expected to abstain from this kind of practice. Uh, and one of the other things that we know from, from uh, at least second, third century or so, Christians became known as, as people who would uh, take in unwanted children. So the word you know, would go out, if you have a child and you don't want the, don't want the infant, instead of exposing it, instead of abandoning it on the trash heap or killing it, uh, bring it to a Christian and they will take it in and raise it. The Christians also responded in similar manner to the gladiator games. Yes, yes, and uh, it's interesting. At some point, it took some time. It wasn't immediate, but uh, by roughly the late 4th, 5th century, uh, gladiatorial sports and uh, and uh, child exposure and such things uh, became illegal. Mm-hmm. Again, is it simply a coincidence that these things happen at some point after early Christianity becomes uh, official religion of the empire? Mm-hmm. Now, there's one social institution that is usually brought up consistently in debates. It's like, why didn't the Christians do anything about this immediately? And that is the institution of slavery. Yeah. It would have been seen as unheard of in most of the Roman world to do a, to do a full frontal assault on slavery because you know, that was just the way the economic world worked. Yes, uh, uh, slavery had been around from as far back as we know it. I mean, from you know ancient Mesopotamia, uh, 2,000, 3,000 years BC, perhaps, no doubt. Slaves were typically captives in war. If you conquered another people, you owned their territory and you owned their people. And one of the ways that you neutralized them as an enemy was, was to make them into slaves. Uh, slavery in the Roman Empire, most of the slaves were acquired in the same way, at least initially, as long as Rome was continuing to expand and conquer new territories, uh, they were able to uh, refresh the supply of slaves very heavily from that. So it was just an, it was just um, uh, accepted in, in the sense of being a familiar, put it that way, a familiar or commonplace part of culture and had been for millennia. Uh, and it's very interesting that <laughs> When slaves were set free, as in the Roman period, they, they typically were, unlike you know the old South in which slavery was a lifelong thing. You were a black slave and you died a black slave. In Rome, you were a slave, but you might well hope to acquire your freedom after a certain number of years of service or at the death of your master. Very often when masters died, they would provide in their will for their slaves to be uh, set free. So... Freedom uh, was was a real opportunity, and there were lots of what were called freedmen. Uh, these were former slaves who had acquired their freedom uh, in the Roman world. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is that, in at least some cases that we know of, uh, these people who had been slaves and were set free, what did they do at the first opportunity? They bought slaves. Mm-hmm. They knew what it was like to be a slave. They objected to it, and they write about it, and there are people who write about it, you know, of, of of um, you know, of all things, the worst thing is to be a slave. But they have no compunction whatsoever about buying and using slaves themselves. So, slavery was um, was um, a, a common feature of the culture. And I don't know of any thinker or movement of the time that set out to abolish the institution as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you have in in early Christianity and in some of the other thinkers of the time are efforts to try to ameliorate the abuses of slavery 
So one of the things, for example, that um, that um, uh, I think early Christianity promotes is um, to to um, uh, go against to to oppose the sexual use of slaves. Right. Uh, one of the one of the odious aspects of slavery is that uh, household slaves, in particular, uh, were considered uh, available for any kind of service to the master or mistress of the house male or female uh, slaves. And um, so sexual use of slaves, sexual abuse of slaves, was um, quite a common accepted thing. It was not illegal. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I have argued that, that uh, although it's, that we do not have a direct statement saying you shall not have sex with your slave, that the Christian treatment of sexuality in the New Testament, uh, it seems to me implicitly forbids uh, the, the use of slaves, mm-hmm. implicitly forbids sexual coitus with anyone other than your spouse. Yeah, we'll get to that soon. I think we could also say that perhaps Christianity set the seeds for destroying slavery eventually. I think some scholars even said that Philemon could be seen as the Emancipation Proclamation of the New Testament. I think that might be exaggerating a bit. I mean, on on the surface, of course, uh, Paul sends this slave back to his master and says, I'm sending him back to you. He's your slave and he's your property. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, says uh, that there's all this sort of um, uh, rhetoric in the, in the letter saying, oh, yes. uh, welcome, welcome him back no longer as simply a slave, but now as your brother. And even he says, and indeed, treat him as you would treat me. Uh, and so you think, hmm. How do you take somebody as your slave and also treat him as your brother and as you would treat the Apostle Paul? So it, it sets up some tensions, so to speak. It, uh, it complicates, so to speak, uh, the, slave, uh, the slave-master relationship. Explicitly, it does not say, you know, Paul does not say, you must set this man free. Mm-hmm. He just says, I'm sending him back to you. Do with him, of course. He is your property. Treat him as a brother. Treat him as you would treat me. Now, mm-hmm. There is where it, it complicates that slave-master relationship. We were talking some about Ben Witherington pre-show, and Ben Witherington has been on here before. And I, I've heard him giving a talk online about the book of Philemon. And he, when he reads it, he shows that there is what we would call major burns on Paul's part to Philemon, where he calls him out publicly or the audience, he doesn't come out and explicitly say, hey, make him a free man, but that's certainly what he thinks he's implied that he should do. Well, it's, um, I think, it, at the very least, it complicates the slave relationship, mm-hmm. slave-master relationship, to mm-hmm. such a degree that it could not operate, uh, it's difficult for me to see how it could operate uh, in the way in which it may have operated before that. You know, mm-hmm. How do you treat a slave as a brother? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you treat a slave as you would treat the Apostle Paul? That's mm-hmm. uh, almost like a contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it effectively, uh, yes, does introduce uh, a complication. Now, of course, the additional thing to say is um, the reason given is that uh, uh, Onesimus has become uh, a Christian believer. Right. And so it leaves open the question, well, what should you do with your non-Christian slaves? 
Uh-huh. If you have slaves that are not believers, uh, do you treat them as a brother? Well, they aren't brothers. So, so as I say, I don't know that I would call it an emancipation proclamation, yeah. but I think the book of Philemon is indicative of uh, the kind of uh, religious dynamics and moral dynamics that seep into the system of slavery, so to speak, seep, seep into the cultural bloodstream of the time, and across the next several centuries uh, have the effect of, um, of making slavery uh, no longer an acceptable practice. Mm-hmm. It reappears, of course, it rears its ugly head again in uh, ostensibly Christian nations, such as the United States. Uh, you know, it rears its ugly head again in, 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 from the foundation of the United States onward, uh, people who are supposed to be God-fearing, ostensibly Christian nation, has mm-hmm. slavery and defends them. Uh, so, uh, you know, Christiana, in, uh, the institution of Christianity doesn't abolish slavery as such. It, it requires um, Christians who are continually ready to engage the deepest and most penetrating uh, moral and spiritual uh, qualities of Christian faith in order to have the courage uh, to uh, renounce slavery. Mm. And let's go to the topic you mentioned earlier also about sexual relationships with slaves, because this is one area where Christianity also went strongly, strongly against the norm. And even in today's times, if you watch many movies and TV shows here in the West, you're bound to see sex show up on the screen before too long, and normally between people who aren't married to one another, and this is seen as normative, this is, well, this is just what people do, and it was definitely seen that way in the Roman Empire, probably even more so, although they didn't have television to do it, but Christians took a really strong stance against that, didn't they? Yes, uh, the, Roman, the Roman attitudes towards sexual practices, sexual mores, are, are, is rather complicated. Mm-hmm. And again, it's complicated because of the different, um, the, the complex nature of Roman society. For example, mm-hmm. if you were a woman, if you were an honorable woman, and you, uh, you, you, you know, from an honorable family, I mean, or, and I don't just mean sort of high ranking, but if you were, you know, a family that, that was conscientious and so on, um, if you were a, a young woman, you would be expected to maintain your virginity until marriage. And um, having sex prior to marriage would be a terribly shameful thing. It would, uh, it would destroy your reputation, and you would be considered a really loose uh, woman. Uh, if you were a free woman, as they say, you were expected to act honorably and present yourself to your wedding night uh, a, a, an intact virgin. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you were a son in that family, in that same family, your brother, let's say, uh, was free to have sex with any woman he wanted to, uh, and this was no condemnation. This was no um, sin or or anything to be ashamed of. Um, the only thing that was uh, that was frowned upon was for males to have sex with married women, with the wives of other men. That was that was a crime. That was mm-hmm. wrong. And that could bring not only, you know, the, the, the angry husband coming at you with a knife, but it could also bring you into court. So you weren't supposed to have sex with other men's wives, nor, and, and it was really frowned upon, it wasn't illegal, but it was really frowned upon for you to try to seduce 
the virgin daughter of some other respectable family. That was from, mm. but you could have sex with slaves, with courtesans, you know, the sort of girls who were brought in for, uh, usually slave girls who were brought in for uh, sexual entertainment at drinking parties, male drinking parties, uh, prostitutes, and dishonorable women. That is, let's say, women from the low, low classes of society who did not have honor. Uh, you could you could have sex with any of these, male and female, mm. slaves, uh, children, whatever, uh, and it was not um, a cr- certainly wasn't a crime, and it would not even be frowned upon. Indeed, if you went to some sort of um, fancy dinner drinking party, your host might well provide slave girls and slave boys for entertainment, depending on your taste. Mm. So there was a very strong double standard. Virtuous women, honorable women, were expected to exercise very strict rule of chastity. Married woman uh, was expected to have sex only with her husband, and so on. Um, Mm. But men had a very different standard. What goes on in early Christianity, in one sense, at the risk of oversimplifying, what goes on in early Christianity is that the early Christians apply the same rule of chastity that everyone expected of an honorable wife, they, they applied, uh, Christians applied the same rule to everyone. Mm-hmm. So they basically said, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and effectively erase the double standard uh, mm-hmm. in their sexual practices. I was also thinking that one of the things I think is also, was also considered shameful for a man was if a man was involved in a homosexual relationship, if he allowed himself to be the one who was penetrated, that was considered shameful as well. Yes, that was considered unmanly in the in the eyes of the sort of the, the people who wrote about it. Uh, it was not shameful to penetrate a man, yeah. but it was considered to be unmanly or shameful to be the one penetrated, usually. Yeah. Although, uh, in Greek culture of the time, uh, there was this notion, particularly in these sort of upper classes, that uh, a male, when he reached puberty, roughly, say, 13, whatever, uh, would perhaps be put under the tutelage of a, of a teacher, an older man who would be his teacher. And it was expected often that during his, during that teenage years, he might well provide uh, sexual services for his teacher. Uh, but then when he turned 18, when he became a man, uh, he would then put that aside, marry, and conduct himself you know, as a, as a sort of heterosexually married person. Mm-hmm. So, as I say, the the sexual practices and attitudes of of uh, sexual mores and, and sexual practices in the in the Greco-Roman world was very complicated uh, by just just a different culture, a different set of what they allowed for. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that setting, early Christianity comes along and simplifies things in in one sense, in that it says this set of sexual practices, this set of sexual uh, mores is to be followed by everyone. Uh, So they say, irrespective of whether you're high class or low class, whether you're a man or woman, uh, this is the uh, kind of uh, sexual uh, chastity, sexual honor, uh, or purity uh, that you're to live by. So it, it, it cuts through that kind of cultural complexity, in some sense, with a kind of simplified and and what many would regard as a very strict uh, standard of sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. 
And we can also talk about how the physician Gavin, at the time, noted that when plague came to the communities, the Christians were actually the ones that were standing by and providing the most aid to those who were afflicted. And in turn, it actually helped them in ways they didn't realize because they were able in that way to develop some immunity to the plague that they didn't understand and not be affected by it. And that really helped their numbers to grow as well because the charity was just something unheard of, wasn't it? Yes, that, that sort of argument about plague, I think, is, is derived more from, uh, from a proposal that uh, Rodney Stark made in his book. And he, right. uh, it's, it's an intriguing proposal. It, it's certainly true that Galen and other pagans uh, refer to Christians somewhat grudgingly as the people who, uh, who tended the sick in time of plague, who did not flee the city, but who stayed in the city. The plagues were basically city-based because of sanitation and such things. Uh, and so they stayed in the city, they cared for the sick, and Galen, who of course fled Rome when the plague came and lived out in his country estate until the plague was over, uh, but he then acknowledges the Christians were, with, with a certain grudging attitude, the Christians were willing to uh, risk their own lives and care for people. And Stark proposed that this, of course, acquired Christians a great deal of street credit, you might say, uh, and respect, but also, yes, may have resulted in some of them... Um, if they survived the plague, they then would have had an immunity, which would have seen, uh, which which would have been seen as um, remarkable, perhaps almost a kind of magical uh, property uh, mm-hmm. in, in that setting. So, in various ways, uh, uh, you know, uh, Christianity may have grown um, and commended itself uh, in, in the in the condition and in the setting of plagues. It's an interesting idea. I, I don't know that I developed that in my book so much, but uh, Rodney Stark certainly has in his book, and it's, it's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about how Christianity has shaped the world today, if we picked up a book by the new atheists and such today, it would practically be taken for granted about something like the gladiatorial games, or slavery, or leaving children out to die in the wild would be condemned, and we'd say, we all know this is wrong, all of us know this already, if you went to the Roman Empire and said, this is Rome, Macbeth still would said, what are you talking about? This is life. What are you complaining about? Yes, that's true. Uh, over the long durée of, of the first, uh, you know, several centuries, it, mm. Christianity, you know, when it becomes the official religion of the empire, isn't until mm. sometime in the, in the mid to late fourth century. Mm-hmm. But... Um, uh, and, and even at that point, the majority of upper-class people, at least, and the majority of the population are still pagans. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the actual cultural impact of Christianity takes centuries to have its its full effect. And so you see, you know, not not an immediate cessation of gladiatorial combat. I think at some time, I forget, sometime in the sixth century, I think, when when gladiatorial combat is finally outlawed. Um, <clears throat> but that's because, of course, um, uh, even even though Christianity is is made legal and then made the official religion of the Roman Empire, it takes time for any sort of religious outlook to have a broad cultural effect on laws and institutions and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in already the point that that I'm making in the book, where I confine my attention in the book to the first, roughly the first three centuries, that is before any sort of official involvement. Uh, in Christianity, before Constantine, when Christians still had to live by their wits, 
so to speak. And when Christianity was an uh, unofficial, had, and had no official status, and Christians were a minority sect that, um, that had no standing, no status, already in that setting, Christians are developing uh, ethical standards, behavioral uh, standards and requirements, their own independent belief system, uh, are articulating and defending them uh, impressively, particularly in second century writers such as Justin Martyr or Athenagoras or Tertullian. Uh, you have a very powerful um, attempts to articulate and defend Christianity and setting forth a, a Christian moral culture, you might say, mm -hmm. uh, which they are practicing within their own circles. Uh, by by dint of in the the inner strength of of their their faith as groups, so it's it's quite an impressive thing. Uh, mm -hmm. In the long run, that stance and that energy, once Christianity is is appropriated by the Roman Empire, something of that uh, stance and that energy certainly gets diluted, but it can. But nevertheless, it it remains healthy enough to have a, a very positive effects uh, across the first several centuries after Constantine adopts Christianity. So it's part of what is meant, and one blurb on the book is that early Christianity destroyed one world, helped to destroy one world, and helped to create another. Mm -hmm. and so in essence, the morality that we think is so common today, but in some ways we're, st we're starting rebellion against it, like I said, sexuality especially, it's really not a common morality, it's a Christian morality, and you could go to many places in the world today, and just like you find many places where gods are believed in, the Christian moral belief system isn't seen as the universal belief system, is it? No, no, uh, that's that's true. Uh, you know, I, I point out in the book that there certainly are points of similarity in mm -hmm. the early centuries. There certainly are points of similarity between particular moral standards uh, advocated by early Christianity and by some of the philosophical schools of the day. Again, our old friend Musonius Rufus is frequently cited, or Epictetus, both of these sort of Stoic-oriented um, philosophers of the same period. And in someone like Musonius, you have um, uh, admirable standards. I mean, as I say, he criticizes child abandonment. Mm -hmm. He argues that men should live by the same rules of chastity as women did, uh, and so on. So he has a somewhat similar set of of, the, of um, values, um, and if you just compare idea with idea, then okay, there, there's a great deal of similarity. But the point I make is yes, but um, if you are asking about uh, uh, compare social projects, Musonius' social project was simply to try to shape the behavior of the small handful of philosophical students gathered around him. The aim of early Christianity was to shape the behavior of every single adherent who joined the religion mm -hmm. and to try to influence, to try to advocate and, uh, a Christian faith more broadly in the culture and thereby to try to shape the behavior of, uh, of all those who became adherents. So as two social projects, there's just no comparison. Mm -hmm. Impact and influence of Christianity um, was always bound to be far more far-reaching than the, the so-called stoic uh, sophist circles of the first couple of centuries. Well, unfortunately, I don't think there's enough time to really ask another question. 
Now, Mr. Morbellox, everyone know the book is Destroyer of the Gods. Now, I've got a paperback version here, but when it comes out, it's going to be coming out in hardback. I just That's checked on... Yes? It comes out in hardback on uh, September, and as I say, um, you can order it in advance and uh, have it delivered as soon as it's out. I checked the price right now. The listing has a price of... Twenty-eight fifty-two. If you pre-order it, but I I did see that if you order it, and the price drops before then for some reason, that you will get the refund in. So if the yep. price is worrying about you now, keep that in mind. Right. And again, folks, this is an excellent book. Really, when I went through, I was probably highlighting something on most every page because it was just that incredible to have it in. I, I, want, I want to thank you for the book, Dr. Tardo, and for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, and I hope that uh, your, you and your readers will uh, enjoy the book and, and gain a lot from it. Well, if uh, someone wants to find out more about you and what you do, do you have a blog or website, a way people can get in touch with you? Uh, yes, I have a blog site. It's simply uh, uh, Larry Hurtado, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, LarryHurtado.wordpress.com. Mm-hmm. And that's H-U-R-T-A-D-O for anyone interested out there. Now, do you have any final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? No, I think we've covered a lot of things. I would I simply express my appreciation to you again for mm-hmm. the opportunity to talk about my book. Authors, as you will know, always are happy to talk about their books. Oh, yes. And I, I really hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have J.P. Holding coming on talking about his book, that Jesus was a mushroom and other lies you won't believe. We're going to be talking about conspiracy theories, the Illuminati, the New World Order, things like that. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off.